The Guardian. If there was been about 100,000, but 500,000 people, they've got to listen to that. They have got to listen to it. A show of strength from Britain's trade unions with up to half a million people marching through London at the weekend. But what happens now? I'm Adit Chakraborty, and this is a business podcast. Coming up this week, we'll hear whether the country should be braced for a summer of discontent. As we enter a new financial year and cuts begin to bite, can the protesters carry public opinion with them? And coming up later, just how much is too much? Economist Diane Coyle on her new book, The Economics of Enough. But first, a big welcome to my guests this week. In the studio, we've got The Guardian columnist, Polly Toynbee. From campaigning website Force Economy, Clifford Singer. And from the Work Foundation and former Chief Economist of the TUC, Ian Brinkley. The cuts to public spending are politically motivated, unnecessary and can be stopped. That was a message of hundreds of thousands of trade unionists who marched through London this weekend for what they called the alternative. Early this morning we spoke to Unison's Assistant General Secretary Bob Abberley and asked him what happens now. Well, at this stage, uh, it's a bit early to talk about uh, large-scale strikes, although it is true to say that there are industrial action taking place now in uh, different parts of the country against their local employer. So we've got that kind of general uh, campaigning at local level where we're trying to get changes at local level, but then we've got the overarching campaign, which is trying to change a government policy. And our next real key target will be the local elections, because obviously we will be Uh, asking candidates standing in those local elections where they stand on these key issues of cuts, uh, tax on pensions, uh, privatisation, wage freezes, all those issues. Generally speaking, if you want to change government minds, then you need to get huge public support because there's nothing that uh, uh, worries politicians more than when the public are against what they're trying to do. And we believe that the position is shifting dramatically. Although at the beginning when the government came in, the public generally thought, well, this is the right thing to do. They're now beginning to realise what those cuts mean uh, in their day-to-day lives. And so the position is uh, shifting. And we do believe there is an alternative to what the government is doing. It's uh, it's a big moment. I, I must say people are joining our union daily because they see that we stand between the government and uh, a disastrous policy of cuts in public services. So it is a big moment for us. And I think we will step up to the plate and we will deliver not just for our members, but for the public, because at the end of the day, although health uh, and local government workers, public sector workers generally are, are suffering themselves, their main concern is the people that, for whom they serve. It's the cuts in public services that they are most worried about, not just their own pay and conditions. Bob Abberley from Unison. Ian Brinkley, you were chief economist at the TUC until relatively recently. How big a moment is this for the trade union movement? It's a, it's a big moment in terms of trying to decide what the future strategy ought to be. We've seen this before, large-scale demonstrations that don't actually go anywhere and don't actually change the mood. I think there's a, 
what the trade unions need to do is have a game-changing moment. Actually think about this long term. Don't just think about demonstrations and strikes, which on their own will achieve very little. They'd have to think about things which the trade unions have neglected over many years, which is actually to make an investment in intellectual capital, to make the arguments against not just what you're against, but what you would do instead. Unless you can win both sides of that argument, your chances of changing government policy, I think, are quite low. And you've got to play it long. Governments always play it long. Vested interests, such as the uh, banks, always play it long. The trade unions have got to play this one long as well. And that means not just having a strategy for this year, it means thinking about two to three years up to the next election. Polly, uh, you were on the march on Saturday, anywhere up to 500,000 people there. It's very difficult to get a, a crowd that big to think about long-term alternatives to a very complicated deficit reduction programme, isn't it? What was good about it was the sense that there were just huge numbers of really ordinary people doing really ordinary jobs of all kinds, yes, mostly in the public sector, but who were not necessarily people who'd ever been on marches before and um, who just felt passionately about the services that they work in. And it wasn't just about their jobs or watching their colleagues' jobs go, but I think a, a real sense of outrage at seeing services that they've built up over the years being shredded and it is heartrending when there are just so many programs so many schemes so many wonderful things going on and you just see them being ripped out I mean the heart taken out of a lot of sure starts for instance uh, that take a long time to build up and can be destroyed in a day so I think there was that real sense out there that they needed to communicate that. But I think it was a beginning. You know, it's it's not an event in itself that changes anything, but it was a kind of milestone. And I think the start of a campaign to come, because after all, it's not until April that the cuts are actually seen. Most people, alas, don't read The Guardian and won't know what's going to hit them. An awful lot of people won't know what's going to hit their own pockets. You know, families who suddenly find 10% of their childcare gone, a large amount gone uh, will be very shocked so I think this is the beginning of alerting the public to what's going on. Clifford Singer uh, Ian's talked about trade unions Polly's talked about ordinary people and public sector workers but there was another group on the Saturday March New Kids on the Block UK and Cuts and other so-called left insurgents like you the new faces of protest how do they sit with the other two constituencies we talked about? Well, there's been a lot of discussion going on about U- about UK Uncut's role during the demonstration. First of all, I, I would play- pay tribute to UK Uncut because I've sat in a lot of rooms before with people from campaigns and think tanks moaning about the fact that, that tax avoidance as an issue just hasn't really been put on the agenda. We've had a lot of good research about it. But it doesn't set pulses racing. No, that's right. And people have been saying, where, where's the anger? Where's the anger that we saw over MPs' expenses, where, where, where much more money is involved in this case? And UK Uncut came along and just, just made it an issue, really, with some very imaginative and creative protests. And, and I really commend what they've done. There's an issue about whether they should have timed their campaign initiatives for the demonstration last Saturday. And I think maybe in, with hindsight, they made a state but it's easy to say that with hindsight because if the kind of black bloc anarchists the the masked anarchists hadn't also joined in we might have seen a very different narrative one which said um, this was a highly successful demonstration of 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 mainstream britain if you like which is what it was and on top of that we had some of these interesting um, imaginative protests going on to bring attention to to, to the fact that some of these high street names are involved in in tax dodging take a step back and give me some texture who are UK Uncut? What do they, what do they look like? How are they different from your normal trade unionists? 
Well, they look like you and me, probably. Um, that, that they, they, uh, I think one of the interesting things about them is, is that quite a lot of them come from the climate change movement rather than traditional left-wing and trade union activities, really. They're pretty young, and there isn't a UK uncut group. That's the key thing about it. That they're, 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 they are very, very much a, a disparate network. And it's true what everyone says, that they came about through Twitter. But what's been so interesting about them is whereas... In the past, people have tended to criticise internet-based action. They've used the term clicktivism. It's something that, 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 that involves very low effort but doesn't do very much. UK Uncut came along on the internet with the specific aim of taking their actions onto the streets, and more specifically onto the high streets. Ian, on one hand, we've got young people coming out of the climate change movement on Twitter, Facebook, and normally armed with PhDs in comparative political theory from my experience. And on the other side, we've got trade unions who are overwhelmingly white men of a certain age. It's very difficult to see how the two movements combine, isn't it? Um, Trade unions have never been particularly good at uh, galvanising young people. That's absolutely true. I would say that if there's a profile, it tends to be older men and older women, the young relatively underrepresented in the trade union movement. There may be different ways of doing it, and I think particularly if the, if the union movement can move into areas which it hasn't been uh, terribly well involved in, particularly around green climate change issues, where actually there's a very strong workplace issue is there as well. But I suspect this is one area where trade unions are always going to struggle a bit. They're not really geared to galvanise young people, and that's not really their core market. Polly, just thinking back to the uh, clip we heard from Bob Abberley, He's talking about strikes in workplaces, the the normal sort of language of industrial relations, really. And I just wonder, is that the best tool to use to protest against a large, overwhelmingly savage deficit reduction programme being imposed from Westminster? No, I think it's almost the worst. If you want to protect public services that you work in, the idea that you go on strike against which is what it amounts to, the very people who need those services and the people you're trying to protect from having those services cut simply makes no sense whatever. I mean, today, as we speak, teachers in Camden are on strike in support of some children's services, a very worthy cause. They're right, it's appalling that they're being ripped out. But Camden is a Labour council. Camden has to make appalling cuts and terrible decisions. Sending kids home so that other parents have to take a day off work to look after their kids in the middle of the week is hardly a way to galvanise public support for bad things happening. I mean, the trade unions should be demonstrating, should be doing everything they could in every imaginative way they can to draw attention to what's being lost but not going on strike damaging the children and the parents that they really want to protect Uh, i completely agree with that Uh, in terms of trying to change both the public mood and government policy strikes are a pointless activity the trade unions could be putting all their effort into other things well, to be fair to the representative from Unison, I think he was going out of his way too to say it's important that we communicate with the public and, and, and keep the public on board. I agree that that, that that strike action that simply alienates people isn't helpful at all. But I think I'm, I'm also mindful of, 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 of the, the IMF report from a few weeks ago which complained about 
which noted that the, the, the um, diminishing amount of, of national income that's going to, to labour in general and said one of the reasons for this is, is, is the weakened state of the unions and, and the lack of union power. So when the IMF start almost calling for more strikes, then, then you have to take note. But I think, yeah, the, the basic point is right. What, what the unions need to do is, is make sure everything they do is, is linked up with communities. In some cases, strike action might be the right thing if, 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 they're, if they're doing that in a careful way. Certainly, um, stuff I've heard from um, Tower Hamlets in London where, where there's been strike action going on is, is that they've also organised a, a demonstration. There's a lot of parents and children taking part in that. So um, I think the question is not whether strikes are right or wrong, but, but how they are done, where they occur. Where they occur. But the key thing is to make sure that we, we build this, this big mainstream campaign against the cuts that, that involves communities as well as trade unions. You might well strike against a Conservative council, for instance, and say, look, it's, it's these Conservatives and those Conservatives in Westminster that have caused these cuts. That might make some sense, though I still think it's probably more destructive than useful. But, you know, when you're stri- the, the poorest areas that are suffering worse, whether it's, you know, Liverpool, Tower Hamlets, Camden, Lambeth, they're all Labour and it's very uh, hard to be attacking the wretched Labour councils. And there are going to be many more of them after May when Labour controls an awful lot more places having to make cuts. They, you know, that. Uh, they find very painful. But set against that, Polly, if you talk to people like Mark Sawatka, the head of the PCS, what he says is it's only when people's pays, paying conditions and jobs are threatened that they will actually take action. And so the only way that you actually do get effective protest is uh, in strike form at the threat of losing your job. So beyond that, I, feel, I find it very difficult to see how people will actually take time off work and go on a march or make placards or go on Facebook and post angry blogs or, or whatever unless they feel they've actually got something to lose if they don't. I think that would be a lot easier if there were a whole lot of people in the private sector who were organised and were going to do that. The fact is that it's all going to be almost entirely the public sector, not because those are the only people losing their jobs at all, awful lot of contracted out and other people losing their jobs, but because that's who's unionised just by tradition. And so it will be perceived as being public sector looking after their own and that's a disaster. If you could get a lot of the private sector out as well, then you might be talking about a slightly different mood and a slightly different feeling to the thing. Ian, one of the themes that's emerged uh, in the protest against cuts is of, oh, I suppose it's quite a traditional one, the TUC is being accused by groups like the PCS of being quite slow in getting this act together, being a bit too docile, and people like Mark Sawatka and Len McCluskey would like to be a lot more vocal and a lot more active. Well, it's always been the historic role of the TUC to be accused of selling out the working class. It's been that's ever since the day it was formed. It's, it's performed that historic role, uh, and this is no, no different. Um, the public service unions are not particularly good at coordinating strike action across their own mem- members, let alone uh, trying to get the TUC to do it. And they will use the TUC as cover for to advocate policies which they know have did not have widespread support across the trade union movement. So it, this is just the TUC fulfilling its um, its historic role as being the whipping boy for voices advocating actions which they know are not going to happen. They don't even have strong support within their own unions. I mean, Mark Sawatka has got out the PCS before and actually not very many people do go out on strike when he calls them. 
well, I, I don't sense a great appetite for people going on strike at the moment. People have got enough problems without also going on strike. Yeah, but we haven't yet begun the, the cuts in earnest, have we? I mean, we, that, we, that all we starts in a couple of weeks' but time. The, the history of strikes to try and defeat a broad-based government policy that's been decided already, the success story there is, is very poor. Fine, but set against um, Marx Watkins cry which goes something like not a penny cut not a job lost or some version of that against brendan barber saying well we you know we we think the cuts are just going too far too fast one of those sounds more compelling to me than the other and it's not brendan barber's well uh, people will say much the same about arthur scargill not a not a pit to be closed until exhausted and not a job to be lost for the injury or know where that ended um and i think you you just have to look at the public mood at the moment and though it's against the cuts it also recognises we've got a hell of a problem with the deficit and something has to be done about it and you can argue that it ought to be done in rather different ways which would be less harmful to wages and jobs but nonetheless there is something that has to be done there and Brendan's position is actually quite a balanced one it's, it's responding to realities and I'm afraid I don't regard uh, the PCS position as being particularly realistic. I think it's wrong to fixate on on, on sort of TUC and, and PCS leadership and, and who's right, who's wrong. The, one of the issues has been how long it's taken to, to have this national demonstration. And you could say that the, the, the TUC came in for a lot of stick for this, but you could say they made the right call. I don't think it would have been anything like as big as it was on the 26th of March if they hadn't had this, this, this incredible build up to it and and what it was about was, was was half a million people marching on the streets and being there in the middle of the crowd some of it looked like middle britain i mean that in a good way it looked like the mainstream that's who they were for a while i was marching behind the the the, the, the prison officers association i was secretly half hoping they'd be kettled just to see what the reaction was but that didn't happen <laughs> But the question now is, is not, I don't think it's to be fixated on striking or not striking. It's really how we, how we build this campaign, bring more of the public in. And the danger of, of having waited so long, although I think it was the right call in size of numbers, is that now the question is, is what now? How do, how do we, as Ian said, play the long game? Not even just the long game. How do we play the rest of the year, really? And it's important to keep up the momentum. One other thing I would just add is that, is that local campaigning is very important too. We shouldn't just think about a big national London demonstration. And for instance, this Friday, there's a day called All Together for the NHS, where there's going to be local lobbying, mainly in Lib Dem and marginal MPs constituencies, trying to get pressure on changes to the health bill. So I think that kind of local activity is very important too. I think drawing exactly so. I mean, UK Uncut has shown how, with real wit and cleverness, drawing attention to a particular, sometimes difficult question, like people not paying their tax, companies not paying their taxes, and with wit, like taking over a bank and setting up uh, a paddling pool and saying, you know, you've caused our swimming pool to be closed down, so we'll set our swimming pool up here. Or you've caused our library to be closed down, so they bring a lot of books and say, we'll have a library inside Barclays for a couple of hours. And they just do it for a couple of hours, no, no damage caused, and then go away again. But the point has been made it's clever it's absolutely to the point and um you know people stop and ask you explain and uh they're interested and very indignant i mean tapping into that indignation about people not paying taxes and about the way the banks have behaved and the bank bonuses there is a wealth of you know real middle england fury about that amongst lots of conservative voters too ian what's the role of i know economists or uh academics in this because if you if you you started off by saying that we need to have some idea what the alternative could look like it's very important to be actually to win the intellectual arguments on some of these things and that can only be done by a lot of patient investment 
if you look about the rise of um, Thatcherism in the 80s, that was paved the way by a lot of investment by right-wing think tanks and thinking through what the economic policies were. You saw something similar to that going on in the 90s on more left-leaning think tanks. Um, we don't really see much of that at the moment. And um, if I was at the TUC, I'd be advocating doing what the European trade unions have done. And they've set up an arm's-length European trade union institute, which does nothing but research and think about these economic and employment issues. We have nothing like the equivalent in this country. We have a few underfunded think tanks, uh, really can't, not capable of doing the job. We have a few pressure groups, which again run... A, terribly under-resourced. We don't have that separate firm centre which can actually think about these things and put forward credible economic alternatives and think it through in detail. At the moment, if you hear what the Labour Party is saying, it is incredibly vague and quite often uh, indistinguishable from what the Coalition is doing. OK, final question to you all. Where do we go from here? Polly, you first. Vicky is dead right that the policy is at the heart of it. And then when you've got the policy to be able to uh, condense it down into simple, you know, easy to remember, you know, like we maxed out our credit card is such a winner for the right. Labour needs, you know, too far, too fast is beginning to get traction. And people understand that, you know, it's a moderate message. But it is, you know, we would cut half as much. I think Labour will have to say what they would cut or where they would get the growth for sure in a provable way. Well, again, I think somehow turning around the government's message around debt is very important. And it's been really interesting to see the revised um, OBR figures, which have shown that over the next three years, while they say public debt will go down slightly, personal household debt is going to go up massively. And Osborne came in saying that, that, that himself that, that, that it was private debt that was the cause of the crisis. So I think much more probing questions need to be asked about why it is they're pursuing policies that are going to increase that private debt even more. Ian, last word to you. Uh, well, I think the OBR is a good example. Uh, it's the employment forecast for the public sector, I think, are just aren't credible. And that's because they use a very, very simplistic economic model. I just think if you had another respected instituting there that could actually uh, put the uh, government's policies to the test and actually give us a really authoritative, independent think- figure on just what this means for jobs. At the moment, we don't have one. And I think we desperately do need one. So is what you're calling for, is it for new thinking or is it for more what you might call empirical research? I think it's a mix of new thinking, consolidating the very scattered and disparate efforts which are around to try and uh, think through what the alternative problem is, Uh, and uh, some of this new research into new areas. We are are in a very new economic position. We've never really been here before. So the need for new thinking, as well as uh, coming out with some new empirical research, has has never been more urgent. And if you're looking at the alternatives to what's going on, the provision of resource for that has never been so so weak. Well, let's leave that there. Thanks to you all. There's more on this at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, one of the major reasons we've got these cuts in public spending is because of the collapse of the banking sector and the recession that followed. But according to The Economist, Diane Coyle, it's not just the public finances that are out of whack. It's a whole range of things. The origins of her new book, The Economics of Enough, can be traced back to that fateful autumn in 2008. My sister had had all her life savings in Northern Rock and rang me up when she saw the keys outside to say, should she take her money out? I said, don't worry, it'll be fine. But she took her money out and put it all in RBS. 
And a little bit later, the weekend Lehman's collapsed. I looked at what was happening in the interbank market, where the interest rate at which banks lend to each other was going through the roof. And I thought, blimey, if they don't trust each other, I don't trust them. And I spent the next five days lining up at cash machines, taking out as much cash as I could. And then when I thought about it a bit more and thought, well, Waitrose isn't going to be able to pay its suppliers. I'd better go and get some water and canned food as well. And I went to the supermarket and stocked up. And from there, how on earth did you come up with uh, a hefty economics book? I thought that the financial crisis was only one of many crises that we're facing. It um, put the spotlight on the social tensions in some of the Western economies, particularly the US, but also Britain, looking at the extent of inequality, the corrosion of that kind of social uh, cohesion that in the good old days we used to have. The environmental crisis wasn't going away. There were demographic pressures. I thought the financial pressures on the state due to demography, but also the expectations that people have about what kind of pensions and welfare they're going to get. That was not sustainable. And these all seemed linked by our failure to pay attention to long-term issues and decision-taking. Your argument, uh, to put it really, really simply, is that we're living beyond our means on a variety of uh, levels. What can we do about that? Well, one of the first things that we need to do is understand that we are living beyond our means and we don't really have the data to do that. So although it sounds like a very anarchy subject, I think measurement and data is really important. And not so much um, looking at particular environmental indicators, for example, but looking at a national balance sheet in the fullest sense, looking at the assets that we have, the financial, the physical infrastructure, also the environmental, the human capital, the social capital that we have, to understand that if GDP goes up this year and we're better off this year, Are we doing that because we're productive or are we doing that because we're eating into future capital and making future generations worse off? How far do you think governments are to recognise that we're living beyond their means? And what do you you make, for instance, what do you make of the reaction of regulators since banking crisis? I think quite a lot of politicians do recognise it, but the pressures on them are very intense. And one of the reasons for looking for different kinds of data is that that's something that would give them ammunition to hold off some of the short-termist pressures. I think actually there are many politicians who understand these longer-term issues and some of them have even written books about it as well. The regulators are a different matter. I think they have a much narrower focus than many regular politicians. They, they're looking at their bit of the waterfront and I'm actually really disappointed in the reaction of the banking regulators because we're back to business as usual. The crisis could happen again next year. And if you look at some of the behaviours in financial markets, they're already underway. And we're going to look at the same problems again. Isn't that the point, though, that uh, actually we're back to business as usual on a, on a number of fronts? Uh, we have not progressed very far on climate change internationally. Bankers effectively going back to their old ways. And for all the arguments about debt and deficit, there are a series of quite short-term measures which are being taken to reduce government spending in the short run which might actually have quite bad long-term effects yes it'd be much better to reduce government spending without eating into capital and infrastructure budgets which i think is what you're getting at obviously uh, that's true and i don't think the changes that we've seen in public spending acknowledge the demographic issue because they're taking money away from services for younger people and leaving money in Um, subsidies for older people you know old people's fuel allowances and so on so if you look at the overall kind of demographic spread of the budget measures they're um, not particularly responding to the long-term pressures that we've been talking about so how can it be that 
individually as uh, people with pensions or people with kids, people just work, planning ahead to our next holidays, that we are capable of taking a view about things six months, a year, decades hence, and yet collectively we can't. I think in the end it's a question of a sense of belonging to a community and a sense of responsibility for others and for the future. And that sense of responsibility has really eroded. I'm always really struck. I, I come from Manchester and go there a lot. I'm always really struck by just looking at a building like Manchester Town Hall or Central Library and being awed by the kind of confidence and belief in the future that the people who built the infrastructure were still living on had in those days a century ago. And that's, in, in essence, the kind of confidence and, and commitment to our joint future that we need to make again. All right, there'll be people looking at the title of your book, The Economics of Enough, and they'll be hoping that you make a slightly different argument than the one that you've outlined. Uh, I can think of Greens who might say that actually what we need to do is we need to stop thinking about growth entirely. We need to dethrone growth, as a lot of deep Greens would put it. But you don't have much truck with that point of view. No, I think it's based on um, a statistical error, actually. It's often said that growth doesn't bring happiness, and people are looking at two different kinds of data. GDP is an artificial construct. It can increase without limit. Happiness is measured by surveys that go one, two, three, and we're at 2.6 and we can only go up to three. So there's no way at all that they could rise in line with each other. If you deal with them properly in terms of statistics by taking the logarithm of GDP, for example, so you give it a limit, then there's a really strong link between growth and happiness. And I think people don't really um, understand what GDP measures. They think of it as stuff. And of course, that materialism that we saw in the boom is really distasteful and vulgar. But it's not stuff. A lot of GDP, the majority of it now is services or it's the um, intangible elements manufacturing. And the weight of British GDP hasn't actually increased since 1980. Now, it's not that that has no environmental impact because of energy use, and that's certainly something to worry about. But if you're living in the realm of practical politics and what makes people happy, then saying let's not grow is just not politically feasible. Apart from anything else, any company that improves its productivity needs fewer and fewer people to produce the same output. So what are people going to do and how are the incomes going to be distributed if we don't, don't have growth? I just think it's not practical. And I'd much rather be in a world of practicality where we minimise our impact on the environment than one of impracticality. Okay. Uh, another argument might go that your uh, call for an, a national balance sheet, which takes into account assets, and you just use terms like human capital, and uh, perhaps you'd be inclined to add environmental capital and, and those sorts of things. The, the argument would go that actually by trying to put a value on all of this and give it kind of market value, that actually you're playing to the same... Um, bad habits of thought that led us through the boom in which we try and put everything into the market and actually what we ought to be doing is taking spheres of public life out of the market. You can put a value on things without there being a market price for them and you can also look at non-monetary indicators of all of these things as well and even if, if you want to even put them together in a single index, the Human Development Index, which economists have looked at for years and years, actually does exactly that kind of thing with, um, with non-priced attributes like access to electricity or female education rates so I don't think uh, you're putting them in the market in that sense I don't think there's any implication that things that we feel should not be traded have to be traded for them to be valued.
The subtitle of your book is How to Run the Economy as if the Future Matters. Does that imply that you want the government to take more of, a, more of an interventionist role? I certainly think there's a big role for government, but it might not be the one it used to be. We've had governments that think spending directly on services and intervening quite directly in people's lives is the right model. Actually, I think there's a very important coordinating role for government. And funnily enough, if you're outsourcing activities to the private sector, there are more demands on government because that's just quite a complicated business to manage. So I certainly think there's a very important role for government, but not just for government, actually. We have this idea that it's either government or markets, and there are lots of important economic institutions that um, uh, engage us collectively, and they would include trade unions, they'd include churches, they'd include mutual societies, but they'd include all kinds of other informal arrangements. A babysitting circle, to use a famous example, is an economic institution. And I think we'd have a much more fruitful debate about organising, running the economy better if we acknowledge there's a much wider array of institutions that really matters. It's not just government versus private sector. OK, then in which case, if we're used to thinking, because it's been orthodoxy for years now, that the trade union movement is, is slowly withering away and is now a kind of rump that's based in the public sector. What's your response to something like the weekend march against the cuts? Because there you've got civil society and you get half a million people who are protesting against cuts. Do you see that? What role do you see that in changing economic policy decisions? Well, I think it's really important for the government to acknowledge that when you get so many people out that they ought to think carefully about about what they're cutting. I mean, actually, I think the budget deficit is such that, that cuts are needed. Perhaps they're not the right ones. Perhaps the process could have been more engaging, that people could have been consulted much more about where cuts had to fall. And actually, I think there's too little emphasis on processes that involve people. There's a terrific example in Australia. They have something called Measuring Australia's Progress. So once a year, the statistics office asks, what do you think is important, and publishes the data on those things. And that, um, because now we have all the technologies as well, the online technologies, engaging people in those sorts of debates is, is uh, I think, a really fruitful way forward. And maybe one of the things the March says to the government is they should have consulted more. They should have said, we're going to cut by X percent, but, but what do you think about where those cuts should fall? Diane Coyle there, and her new book, The Economics of Enough, is out now, published by Princeton University Press. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Ian Brinkley, Clifford Singer and Polly Toynbee. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.